Welcome to Inspiring People and Places, where we interview national leaders in the architectural, engineering, construction, and development industry in an effort to educate, innovate, and inspire industry professionals to disrupt the status quo, improve their project teams, and steward public and private investments more effectively. I'm your host, BJ Kramer, President and CEO of MCFA. Allow me to introduce today's guest. All right, Inspiring People and Places. Our next guest is, is a unique guest. Works in and around the construction industry, but is actually an attorney and, an, and a mediator, and we'll get into what that is. Uh, excited to welcome Ken Roberts to the show. Ken Roberts concentrates on construction law, project controls, and procurement contracts. He works heavily with procurement and risk management departments concerning every aspect of planned ongoing construction projects. He has an extensive background in solving multifaceted complex disputes involving delays, disruption and losses of efficiency, breaches of contract for performance or scope of work, payment, and complex multi-party insurance coverage issues. He is a partner at Venable Construction Law Group. Welcome to the show, Ken Roberts. Hi, great to be here. Great to have you. I- I'm excited to see what type of work you're, you're currently doing because I know that between supply chains and inflation and <laughs> cost of doing construction and what was in the contract, what wasn't in the contract, whose responsibility, who owns the risk. Uh, I'm sure you're busy these yep. days. Yep. A, lot of, a lot of activity going on right now. But before we get into that, we start every show kind of getting to know you. How did you, how did you end up in the mediation space, how did you, you know, yep. out of law school, how did you get exposed to what construction law and mediation would be? Where did it all start? It's a great question. I started out in a big firm in Kansas City. I thought I actually was going to do government contracts. My brother headed up for like two decades, the government contracts group at Wiley Ryan in D.C. I had been exposed to government contracts. And I decided to stay in the, the Midwest. The firm in Kansas City actually started, actually had the most government contracts of, of, of any firm in the Midwest. That's what I went there. And their government contracts were all construction-based. Well, I, okay. I started off with a firm that represented large contractors on big projects in litigation. And my wife took a job the head up internal medicine at the University of Chicago. She was originally from Chicago, and that's how it got me up into the Chicago area. And I went from doing litigation. I was doing major litigation in Chicago. And one of the partners, this was at Chef Harden that no longer exists, was the GC of a large utility. And I had done some big litigation for that utility. And he said, you know, you did a good job, but is there any way of resolving these problems at the business table versus the courtroom? And I said, yeah, I'm representing the owner. There's a lot of opportunities. And before I knew it, he had a buddy that was a GC, or actually the president at another large utility. And I, VJ, felt like a jailhouse cigarette. Uh, I, I ended up getting passed between two large utilities where literally on Mondays and Tuesdays, I would be in the construction trailers and with the on-site procurement people on large projects of utility A. And then on Wednesday through Friday, I'd be with utility B in the Hmm. construction trailer and procurement. And I did this for a number of years. And what it taught me was to look at construction problems through the lens of both procurement and the engineers that are actually, you know, on the crappy linoleum with bad coffee in the trailers. <laughs> you know, there there's no Starbucks. In the construction well, sure as heck weren't in the 80s going into the 90s. So I started literally, you know, boots on the ground, working those issues, both from a procurement and airing perspective, large projects. And then I started getting into larger projects, still primarily utility energy based, where we were focusing on project controls. Where's the project on a budget and schedule? Spent three or four years 
in Canada helping bring back the their nuclear fleet that had been mothballed. So I had this expertise, right, of being in the trailers, working with the engineers, working with the schedulers. And the career arc to, look, the data coming out of the project helps you identify where the problems are so you can work the issues in real time. I, I think your audience overall is going to, would know this, but most politicians, most lay people, they tell them that project data is like drinking from a fire hose. They go, oh, there's a lot of data. And it's like, no, if you ever saw a fire hose, it could rip your fingers off. If you tried to drink from <laughs> it, you'd have no lips. In other words, it can be dangerous, right? And And so getting what is the right data, validating that data uh, is two-thirds of trying to figure out where is there a problem on the site. You know, data can be used by all parties to their advantage. What's the right data that executives can pivot off of to try to avoid problems? And so I worked on a number of uh, major projects, really focusing on project data, what's good data, what could you rely on to make decisions? And the arc of my career then took me to on a major project, we'll do where from in, a, in, a, in the course of that project, we might do four to 10 major mediations, multiple days, experts get into it. And it's the combination of understanding how people on the ground in those construction trailers, how they see issues, the pressure they're under, taking the project data that's eventually getting up to the boardroom, the executives, and combining it with problem solving, which is mediating matters before a claim is filed and working with the, with the, the people on site, working with the project data to resolve those issues before they ever get into litigation. We've done, we've done over 50 billion, probably closing into 60, of projects without any litigation. It, it wow. means we mediate 30 to 40 times a year. I, we're, we're now in mid-March, and I've already had 11 mediations this year. No claims, but we're taking project data. We're taking issues that we see, hawking the field. What, you know, why aren't we making the productivity? Why is that costing more? What are the issues the contractor has on that? We're not waiting for the pot to boil over on the stove. We're looking at it and we're, we're, we're hitting it hard early in a problem solving manner with the contractor, with key consultants, subcontractors to work those issues in real time. And, 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 and if you do that, I mean, I know you know this, but the truth of the matter is when a project goes commercial, when there is litigation or there's a claim, the parties, the people on site, they take their eye off the ball. They take their eye off chasing schedule and they become more fixed on explaining a commercial position to their bosses. So the key I found for a project to stay as close to budget, close to schedule, it means that you got to allow the parties in the field to keep their eye on the ball, to stay focused on that schedule and cost, which means that you got to try to minimize the commercial differences as quickly as possible. So, I, man, there's so much that you just said that it's with me. First day on the job as a construction manager in a trailer for the Corps of Engineers as a resident engineer. No Starbucks, yeah. anybody? <laughs> no, no Starbucks. <laughs> the, uh, the director of quality control, quality management said to me, write everything down. <laughs> and then I, that, that has turned into a phrase inside of my company that he who controls the meeting minutes controls the project. Make sure you document every meeting. Make sure it's detailed. Make sure everybody gets to review them because once you review them, right. everybody agrees that that's kind of the status of the project. The other thing he said to me, was settle as much as you can in the field because as soon as it comes up to corporate, the lawyers get involved. The only people that win are the lawyers. The project loses and everybody else loses. So, you know, there's, there's just that deal making that's going to go on the back and forth 
in the field to keep production going, try to keep the project successful. The question is, you know, it, you said once it goes commercial, people start, you know, they take their eye off of production or or the success of the right. project and it's just, it's positioning, right? And we've tried project partnering, we've tried project alliancing, we've tried project partnership agreements yep. where you have the the kickoff project. But to your point, once there's real money or real issues on the table, everybody starts taking a position that it's not their fault. Right. How how do you get engaged early enough that everybody knows, hey, this is somebody that's going to be fair and balanced yep. to use, to steal the phrase. He's a subject matter expert and he's going to give us a third party opinion so that we can we can settle this here and keep things moving, not it's not about pointing fingers, but it's about, you know, taking accountability of what, you know, what's a differing site condition versus what should have been in the contract or, you know, how, how, how does somebody know to bring you in and at what point do they bring you in? That's a great question. I, and, and honestly, the, the, the answer, you know, would, it changes over time, right? I, I, so, uh, Right now, I would tell you the to say the five projects that I'm working on right now, representing the owner, which is what our group primarily does. On two of them, I was recommended to CEOs from other CEOs. Been there, done that. Okay. You really need this guy. You know, he helps you solve the problems. That you know, create new ones. And another one of them, GC at a major company that I had helped recommended me to another GC, said you need to get this guy in. Do a lot in the public sector where I've actually had politicians or chiefs of staff for politicians that have kept projects out of the front page that we resolved them and, you know, word of mouth. And I, I've had two projects where, you know, consultants, schedulers, cost owner brings them in, and they've actually said, we can help you, but the guy you really need is who takes our data and then works to keep it out of, out of the litigation. So a variety of sources. I've actually had, I've actually had three projects where the joint venture made of big contractors has said to the owner, well, we wish you would hire Roberts and his team. We just came off a multi-year, multi-billion dollar project and we can work with them. You know, we're going to have mm. issues. We didn't have any litigation with them on the last project. And, and so I've gotten literally, as I said here today, I've gotten hired because contracting entities have recommended me to owners gotten hired because politicians have recommended me. I've gotten hired because GCs and executives have made rec recommendations. And I've gotten hired because consultants have said, you know, we're happy to have the gig, but you actually, you know, if you need, you need Roberts to be able to work with that data and to try to stay out of the front pages and, and subtle matters in real time. So I really think it's word of mouth. And my reputation, my team's reputation of being able to solve problems, work fairly with the other side. I, I tell people that what I'm really doing right now is the intersection between politics, law, and business. And on, mm -hmm. a, on a public project, a mega project in particular, you got to be good at all three legs of the stool. You're the best attorney, but you're representing a public owner and you're tone deaf on politics. You're not helping. You could right. you could be the best at really understanding what the politicians need and you could be a good attorney. But if you don't understand the business side of the equation, you come up short so that for a project to settle as close to budget and schedule as possible. For a project to avoid litigation, get resolution at the earliest stage, um, and for the parties on all sides to feel like nobody was taken advantage of 
that it was a fair deal, even if they lost money or, you know, they wanted more, but they got out. You know, you got to really believe in the process. You got to believe that that was a good result because each side is selling that to their executive team, to the public. And to do that, you got to be willing to work the issues. You got to be committed to the process. And I think it's just what I've done for literally the last 30 plus years, 35 years, has accumulated to that reputation and allowed me to, to be hired. You know, I, I tell people when I teach at Northwestern, I constantly remind people that it takes a lifetime to build up a reputation, but only one instance to wreck that reputation. And you got you to gotta protect your reputation really above all costs. You know, that that people can't believe that you would whore yourself out for one deal. And I I think my team has a very, very good reputation of being fair in contract negotiations, being fair in the job trailer, and being fair when we mediate matters. And that fairness, I think, has carried over to a wide variety of groups that recommend me on projects. Is there anything unique about how you you come into a project and establish the fact that you you know it it you you talked about the data and the amount of data and like you're going to put together the story and then you're going to try and assign you know responsibility? Is there anything unique about how you approach that? We talked before we jumped on the on on the show. My father-in-law's a mediator, but he's. He, He's gone, he's gone to mediation with the attorneys and the owners of, you know, two sides of a story, trying to help them settle before they go to court. You're not dealing with the attorneys, it sounds like. You're dealing with the, the business execs or the, the construction executives. Um, what's your approach? How do you build that rapport on both sides outside of reputation? Any, anything unique there? Well, so I, I, I guess the... I would answer it by by saying that I also do select mediations. I do a lot of evaluative mediations as the mediator. And wow, it must have been, it's starting to get scary in terms of the years. 20 years ago, I wrote one of the first articles, Loyola Law Journal, on evaluative versus facilitative mediation. And back then, if you said, I want an evaluative mediation, Everybody kind of put up their hands. That was taboo. They viewed it as Caesar, thumbs up, thumbs down (laughs) on the ultimate issue. And facilitative mediation, right? Let me help you get to what you want to. That was the Vogue term. That's what everybody said they did. And what I found when I was actually in mediations representing parties is the dollar amount, the complexity, you know, it it wasn't facilitative that allowed the parties to get to the resolution. It was the mediator being evaluative with the parties that helped them understand, you know, what the zone of settlement was. Not not necessarily subtle, but so they saw the perspective in the right way. An example I would give you is if you, if I were the mediator. And you said two plus two is seven. I'd go, BJ, am I missing a variable? Oh, no. No, no, Roberts. Two plus two is seven. And I'd be like, well, that's bullshit, isn't it? You know, I mean, because that's just, de- you know, so this idea of, oh, you know, every you know, there's two sides to a story. Actually, there's not, right? Two plus two is not seven. If we're not, there's no other variable. And if you said that, eventually you'd be proven wrong. You might cost your client a lot of money. It might have taken some time. But there are positions on a, on a construction project. There are interpretations of contracts. Yes, some are gray. You got to call out what's gray. Most have a range, but there are numbers, there are issues outside of that range. That is bullshit. If you say that's what, you know, it's just not, that's right. not right. And evaluative mediations, I always found that everything you can break down in the evaluation. Who did the mediator go to first? How long did they spend? What issues did they raise? 
those were all signs from the mediator as to where they thought the issues were. I've taken that, and we went, like on the St. Croix project, the bridge project that involved two state DOTs, a large joint venture. I mediated that for two years. We met every month. We got into the weeds on very technical, highly technical engineering issues, brought in the experts, worked through the issues. A lot of mediations, you know, a day mediation, you would have had two ships passing in the night. This was really dense engineering issues in some aspects. Some others were scheduling or cost. People would hear it in a day, two-day session, sometimes three. They'd need to go off and digest it for the next month or two months and come back. And we did rounds of that. So that and when I am doing what I would call evaluative mediations for a project, project mediator, we're really getting into the details so that nobody feels that the other side tap danced and then got off stage. Each side mm-hmm. believes, their experts believe, they asked all the pertinent questions. We do roundtable discussions on issues. And what happens on those is you rob the parties of excuses as to why it can't settle. They've been given all of the time they need to analyze and respond. They've been given all of the airtime they need to get the explanation out. And I had one where I had a a leading engineer that had what I call had mush mouth. I mean, just could not, you know, you know, if, if, if there was a fire and he had a marshmallow, it was 50-50 whether we could have gotten it toasted. But he said, oh, if you just, if you just, I, I, you know, when we were getting into what was the likely outcome and he didn't like what I was saying, so if I just had more time, I looked at his team and I said, does anybody on your team believe that you needed more time, that you, that, that you were robbed of? And his own team goes, nope, we had all the time. And he said, you just aren't making a compelling case. And I and and I'm a big fan of what uh, creating a report card. You say on a scale of one to ten, you're going to get seven or above. Okay, write that down. Take that to your board. Are you willing to lose your job, your pension? Because you said you could do seven. Right? Now let's go. Let's see what the judge. Let's see what the jury or the arbit- Very few people. Everybody plays Jeopardy at home you know, at six o'clock with a beer, very few people actually get on the stage and can answer Rebecca's questions, right? And <laughs> and what I found is not being flippant, but giving people their due respect, giving experts their time, really diving into that information, really exploring the probability that 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 they're right. What is the likely answer? Getting into that type of evaluation is what allows what allows contractors, major engineers, owners, when I'm doing the value to mediation as to what is the proper range to settle. You know, what is a good business term? If it has to go public, why is that prudent to a public agency? I take that same approach when I represent an owner. I can't look at a problem and, you know, the owner wants it to be nine, but I know the facts and evidence, it's seven all day. I'm not going to argue nine. Right. Go get, go get a different attorney. You know, let's get, you want to settle it. You want to get credibility with the contractor? You know, the answer is seven and here's why I'll prove it. And I think people on large projects, there's constant negotiations that are going on. There's constant dialogue. And what people tend to forget is credibility is built up on these major projects. So when I show you, there's a a, a number two at a a DOT, really outstanding individual, uh, what I call a burnt worthy. In other words, they've been around the block. You know, they've, they've gone over the hot coals. One of my favorite sayings is, you know, we're stuck in a whorehouse and the, the clients say, how do we get out of it? And my answer is, I don't know, but we're not going through the basement. And they're like, why aren't we going through the basement? Because the last time I tried to go through a basement 
there was this clown and he had a chainsaw and he was a mean <laughs> son of a bitch. No basement. You know, you learn from experience what not to do. It doesn't necessarily give you the answer, but you start eliminating, right, your options. This guy, I, I would tell you that he was the perfect example of building up credibility with the contractor. He was given bad advice by his consultants. I think that is a real issue in this industry. Let me pause on that for a second. When I do a thing at Northwestern Lecture where I talk about 10 people that some of you would have seen on cover of the Wall Street Journal, certainly in our magazine, really top notch business people. And I get them to talk about bad decisions they've made, really bad decisions. Every one of them has the same story. Every one of them. They bet if it was a poker game. Because they were told by people that they trusted, that they had worked with, they had three jacks. They turn the cards over and they don't even have a pair of twos. Hmm. In other words, really smart people that have a history of succeeding. When you see them make a profound bad decision, right? They thought they had three jacks. They turn it over. They don't have a pair of twos. Almost always. I mean, almost always, it's based on bad information, bad data, people they relied on, and they made a decision that was profoundly bad because they had bad information. Good business people, smart people, given good data, it allows them to make a better informed business decision. And I'll tell you, that's, that's all I do. It's not that complicated. I help people make a better informed business decision. Now, getting the right data, vetting the data, figuring out what's a jack and what's a two, you know, that could send a lot of people to Betty Ford. But, <laughs> but if you want, you know, what is the crux of projects that can settle? Why do projects go to a litigation? Do they go to a courtroom? It's almost always bad data. And if there's something that is plaguing the industry right now, it is bad data, bad information. You know, I could break that down. It's consultants that oversell their position. There's no entitlement. Well, okay, how do you know? I, I guarantee you there's no entitlement. You know, what's amazing is every time you hear a consultant say that, I want to say, can I have every dime I spent on you? Plus, can I double it if you're wrong so that at least I have something to take back to my boss if the judge, if the arbitrators find there's entitlement? They oversell the position. I think we got a strong argument that there's not entitlement, you know, but there's, you know, this percentage chance. This is why there would be entitlement or cost experts. I guarantee you they're not going to get more than two. OK, you putting your check on that, buddy. You know, right. they want 10. You're telling me there's no way it's it's going to be above two. And what you see is they get their money, they deposit it, they buy the summer house, and then they blame the judge or the arbitrator. It's everybody but themselves. The poor son of a gun that relied on it, their career could be over, right? But people will over rely on their experts and their attorneys and positionality. And here's the thing that we know is the number of trial cases in federal or state court are way down. Arbitrations are starting to cost as much as a regular trial. So, you, so it, there's a huge risk when you do go to that ultimate decision maker. And people are far more confident of their positions because there's fewer trials, fewer arbitrations. But when you get to that ultimate decision making, what I tell people is, do you really want to have an academic answer? Is really, is that what your board really wants? On a scale of one to 10, BJ, you're at a two and I'm at a seven, right? I, I'm going to tell you that the cost of litigation for both of us is two. So anything below four would win anything you know, above a five, right? You know, that, right. so the Delta 
is not a two versus a seven. That's how most people look at it. The real delta is a four versus five. If you're if you're aware of the right positionality. Now that's assuming a two and a seven is right. So that when you really get down to it, assume the two's not right. Now assume it could be it, it could be a four. Assume the seven's not right. It could be a five. The two to litigate it is still the same. And you, you right. can see where the where where they they cross paths and by being willing to test the data, what is the right range? What is the cost of getting there? You know, I've yet to find a lead for uh, a large contractor, a large AE that says, yeah, I want to get the academic number. You know, my boss, <laughs> you know, that's right. That's a good way to get fired. They want they want resolution. They want certainty. They want to get rid of it, that issue as soon as possible stop the bleeding, get their money, be able to explain it to their bosses. And I, I see people with attorneys that are not in the business construction, attorneys that aren't regularly representing that client. It's what I call the Perry Mason syndrome. They are so fixated by trying to have their moment to show how good they are that a lot of times that's done at the expense of the client's interest to get what? An academic number. Hmm. It should be about problem solving. Sometimes you sometimes you pay because of a problem. Sometimes you get money. But what is the right range? What is it that most likely a decision maker, a judge, an arbitrator, what are they likely to decide? And when you know that, even if it's not good for you, you can make a, a smart business decision. What you don't want to do is double down on what you think is three jacks and it's not a pair of twos. You don't want to spend the time with the experts, with the attorneys to come to a number that it's the old Watergate question. When did you know it? What did you do about it? Right? Right. You're the, almost everybody listening to this has somebody that they have to report to. And construction is a business and they want informed data to make a business decision, even if it hurts. And what happens is what happens is that data gets distorted. Positions get overplayed. A, because fact witnesses, people on site have a vested interest. You know, if I'm losing money on a job, if I'm not making the productivity, I really don't want to raise my hand to my boss. And, and hi, yeah, that's on us. You know, there's no one else to blame. That's because right. they're a good chance they're not with that company down the road. So they have a very biased perspective on how to skew the information going up. An AE that's advising an owner. He wants to say that it's the contractor that can't build it. And the contractor's going, this isn't constructible. You know, we have a loss of efficiency because your design, your information isn't correct. Well, you know, you want to know as the owner who likely has the better of that case. You don't want an academic answer at an arbitration after you spent all of that money that indeed the AE had some flaws in their design, that it wasn't as constructible as good, and that the contractor is entitled to money. I, I just had a conversation with somebody. Another, I, 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 well, I, I was teaching at George Washington's law school to a construction group, and, and okay. they said, uh, "What's the, what?" They said, "What's number? What's one of the top problems that that you see beyond what you and I have just talked about?" And I said, it, I, I'm always amazed, especially as a project neutral, that parties will spend everything on trying to fight entitlement or win entitlement and how much less they spend on quantum. What are the damages? What's paid? When in reality, if, you know, I, you know all these people, I'm thinking, did any of you take statistics? Did any of you take research? Because the vast majority of cases aren't settled on entitlement, right? That's a home run for one side. Or, but you prove entitlement, you know, 
sometimes that's worth almost nothing if you can't prove the quantum. What are the damages? And the vast majority of cases, there is entitlement, but where the contractor loses to their boss, the minds of the decision makers, is they thought on a scale of one to 10 that it was damages of seven and they got back 4.5. And again, it cost two to litigate it. So their net was two five. Two point five. And they're just deeply disappointed. Well, you know, when when I and I've been brought into companies to help them do uh, Monday morning quarterback for their board for their leadership, and the truth of the matter is, is that they just didn't put enough emphasis on the damages. You know that they were just fighting like hell on the entitlement, and they didn't do it a, a, a correct, proper diagnosis of what was the likely quantum. And I'd say that on behalf of owners too, and they put everything down on the quantum or on the entitlement and it's a quantum issue and they you know they have no they they've been telling their owner oh we're not going to lose we don't owe any money this is ridiculous okay now all of a sudden they do what's the right range and it's like well, i don't know and it's like you know <laughs> are you are you shitting me just you know how much money have i paid you i mean you better know you know so there's that false dichotomy and if you put more time focused on what's the likely result, right? What's the right range? It's like looking at a chess table and making the moves, but you're both holding on to pieces. What's that likely answer going to be? I think that data and vetting actually can predict what the future is. It's not rocket science. It's getting both sides good data to make an informed business decision. That's where I found success. It's easy to say, right? It's easy to say, but you, you know, if they're both committed to giving time to work the issue, if they're both ready to have the tires kick, hear good news and bad news, that's where that's how you get complex issues that others litigate and you're able to solve them. Inspiring People in Places is brought to you by MCFA. MCFA is a CVE-verified, service-disabled, veteran-owned small business. At MCFA, our why is to inspire people in places through project leadership. We provide planning, strategy, program management, and construction management support services to a wide variety of public and private sector clients. So you, you brought up Monday morning quarterback and kind of easy to say, I, I think the one thing I'd like to pull out of you is how do people avoid going to mediation? What does, what does a bad project look like out of the gate or how do you, how do you stop that? Or maybe, maybe better said, why do projects go bad? Well, I, first, I, I, I think a good project has mediation. I don't think mediation's bad. I, you know, the, I, again, if you had a project that is multiple years, let's say it's a four-year project, it's over 200 million. There are going to be issues, and you want you, you mediate those issues for a bevy of reasons. One, to show that you can problem solve. Two, to create a record if it's a public project, and there's any aspect of prudency. Why that's a right. why, fiscal responsibility. Why that was a good settlement. Why that change order was valid. And uh, when I act as the neutral mediator, because I testified on prudency hearings, right? I, I can help the parties document why settling that change order, why settling right that settlement agreement is a good number, and that and, and a lot of times. On public projects, you know, the ability to satisfy the third parties why that was a good settlement, that's becoming more and more important. But also to satisfy to the boards and people above you on both sides why that was a prudent basis of settling, that's becoming more and more important. So I think getting the parties comfortable with the mediation process, problem solving, not just horse trading understanding what both sides burdens are in terms of outside parties that 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 they need to satisfy that helps build credibility so that when you get into harder and harder issues 
both sides have a, a, a more empathy to the other, understand the constraint. So I think that I think that a it's it's healthy for a project to work on mediations during the course of it. You don't wait. You don't wait until there's a four alarm fire to figure out where do we actually hook up the hose. Where the hell is the fire department? <laughs> what do you mean, where the fire department? I didn't know we were voluntary. You know, does anybody have the keys to the, <laughs> you know, to the truck, right? If you're asking these questions when there's a four alarm fire and people are in peril, you're pretty much screwed, right? So you need, it's like anything else. Working the process, getting people comfortable to it, not only allows you to hopefully avoid those four alarm fires, you know, by catching them, when they're just a kitchen fire, but when you really do have a thorny issue, you've built up the credibility so that if you're delivering bad news, there's a background that goes with it and it's more likely to be accepted. Do do projects ever bring you in as part of kind of the kickoff meeting to to set the table yep. and just say, hey, look, this we've all agreed that Ken's gonna yep. be Ken and his team are gonna be involved and yep. If a change order goes above X percent, yep. have, he's engaged. I have a number of projects where I, I'm on site on a monthly basis, whether there's an issue or not, and you know, walk the site, talk to the parties. We talk about the data, talk about you know, where the SPI, CPI is, talk about how issues are getting resolved, talk about the documentation, if it's a government. But yeah, it's those. Let me just tell you, you want to? Those are my easiest projects because we're working them from the get-go. And those are the ones that are almost statistically, those are the ones that are going to have the least controversy. Those are the ones. Well, yeah, that, you're, proactively, you're proactively avoiding the controversy. A, and, right? and the executives from both sides have bought into it so that, so that if I walk in and there's an issue and, you know, let's just say, BJ, the project team comes to you and says, on a scale of one to 10, it looks like we're at a four. And you go, I need a seven on that to make my numbers. I can walk in and I can go, hey, BJ, you know, remember the other 10 things that we worked at that you accepted? Oh, yeah, those were great. This is the same thing. But Roberts, I need a seven. You know, crap, I could use a dog that listened to me. It's just not <laughs> happening, you know. It doesn't matter what you need, right? It matters right. what is likely to occur. And if you say you need a seven, you got to start figuring out how you explain to your bosses that four is as good as it's going to get. So you stop those types of discussions dead in the tracks. And those are ones where everybody from the get-go is on a problem-solving mode. A big problem in the industry is when I teach at Northwestern, I tell everybody, and I, these are, are typically people who have been in the industry 15 plus years, experience, construction, engineers, design professionals. And I go, you know, you got to tell your boss, you got to tell the team, is there's no, what I call the proverbial green B141 button, that if you just pushed it, Everything right. would be great. The easy yeah. button. You know, there's no pixie dust, right? Um, the truth of the matter is you got to work the issues. The truth of the matter is that identifying the data is and, and what that data is likely to lead in terms of an acceptable rank. It's very, very difficult. You have to work at it. It's the hard, I, you know, in a First, building the project is the hardest thing, right? The constructability, getting it right, not having anybody hurt on the site, but working issues so that you set the right expectations is critical. And, and, you, and you have to work on building up the credibility so that people accept those answers. And that's the difference between a, a, a bad project and a good project. A bad project Almost inevitably, you know, other than a contractor that's a crook that just walks off, you know, sometimes you have bad, sometimes you've selected bad entities and you should ask yourself, right, how did that ever happen? You know, was it the lowest right. price or, but most projects that are deemed bad, you don't have bad actors. There's no nefarious 
reason as to why it's two years late, why it's X over. There are logical bases to it. And, and the truth of the matter is that the best that project was ever going to be was mitigating those issues. It, you know, it ends up being three years late. Well, it could have been a year and a half. It ends up being 300 million over. Well, it could have been 100 million. And, and, right. you know, it's not perfect. It was never going to come in on time. Different site conditions, <laughs> different site conditions, owner changes cause this project to be on its best day 12 months late. Different site conditions, owner changes, constructability cause this project every day of the week to be 50 million over. Somebody can't go, well, it's only good if it comes on time and there's no extra cost. And what it's going to lead up to is one of the biggest problems in the industry is this concept that there is a B141 button, that I can shift risk to the other side, and it's not my problem. I had a governor that had a major project, and they thought that doing design build shifted all risk. And that, and that they wouldn't have to pay any money. And I said, <laughs> Governor, that's interesting. You know, you think by signing this contract, you don't have any additional risk. No, Kenny, I don't. And you think the contractor is 100% uh, on call to hit that, to hit that date. Uh, yeah, that's what the contract says, Kenny. Now, the contract was like, 565 pages. He'd never read it. I said, Governor, that's interesting. And tell me why there's, of this 565 page contract, why are there 32 pages for uh, change orders? Why is there 12 pages devoted to extension of time that the contractor gets because of owner interference changes in design? No answer. Somebody had fed him that by doing a design build contract, they shifted risk. Somebody had fed him that there wouldn't be change orders. And that, I, I honestly, I see that all the time. What's worse is when, and I, this is another trend in the industry where the finance boys are, in fact, writing contracts where the contractor does accept that risk. And the overage is a fight between the contractor and the engineer. And that's not sustainable for our industry. For the industry. No. I agree. You know, and, and you, know, I, you know, people will say, oh, you know, buyer beware. That's on the contractor and the engineer's fault for signing those. And there's some truth to that, but it's a bad contract. The industry is not sustainable. Yes. All problems are vested to the contractor and engineer. That's not healthy for our industry. Or it'll eventually play out as the contracts are going to be twice the cost in the future because you have to build in the cost of taking on that. There risk. are states right now where the very good contractors will not bid because right. they have been involved in horrid contracts that their board will not allow them to work in that state. Hmm. And and yes, you know, history has shown that the contract, it, you know, will get more expensive. History will show that you don't get the best bidders, that you're reducing the competition. But, you know, the the people writing the contracts have to be smarter than that, right? At the end of the day, these mega projects, they employ literally thousands of people. They drive the economy of that state, of that economic area. And the truth of the matter is, you know, that since man came out of the cave, you know, we have not been able to get the right price on a project. And, and the more one-off <laughs> one it off it is, the more of the first edition it is, it's always been more expensive. There's always been things that are more expensive. And we got to stop doing risk shifting as the answer. And we have to understand that building things costs money and trying to figure out what the right price of that is and learn from it is part of the game. And, and that's not 
being imprudent with the public money. What's being imprudent with the public money is trying to stiff the contractors and the AEs so that they have the risk and so that you did well on that bridge or on that tunnel. Uh, but now, on the next 10, 15 years, you've shortlisted the contractors that want to work with you because you're not being fair. You're not being reasonable. So risk shifting in the contracts, it needs to have a fairness element to it. You know, it needs contractors says they can build it for that dollar. There are some projects they're going to take a loss on and they should. Right. But it needs to be a fair game as to what is the bet, who's best able to bear that risk. And it should be an honest discussion of what is an achievable schedule, what is a realistic cost, and how do you work through those numbers. That's good for the public on a long-term basis. And it's very bad for the public if we turn it into, you know, a Game of Thrones and, you know, somebody gets killed every episode. That's not healthy for the industry. I I think we can end on that note. We might have to have a part two, Ken, on on Game you know, of how supply chain how, <laughs> how supply chain and inflation are affecting kind of the current industry and 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 maybe the contracts on projects. I can answer that in two seconds. And, they are, and it's bad. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and and we'll talk talk through risk and and who owns it, but. This was an awesome discussion. I, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us. Um, and, and maybe we will get that second one. So thank you, Ken. Great to be with uh, you. For your time. Thank you. thank you for your wisdom. And thanks for what you're doing to, uh, to help us regulate our industry. Well, it's a pleasure. Thank you very much. Hey, everybody. If you're enjoying this show, do us a favor and subscribe to Inspiring People and Places on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast hosting platform. We'd also greatly appreciate if you left us a review and share this with other entrepreneurial public servants and all your friends and family in the AEC space. Be sure to visit our website, www.mcfaglobal.com. Sign up for our newsletter to stay in touch with us and learn about all of the projects and clients we're helping. Last but not least, we are hiring. We are always hiring. Do us a favor. Take a look at what jobs we have open. Contact us through our website or connect with me on LinkedIn. Until next time, have a great rest of your week and a great weekend.